This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight, picking up right after where we were this morning, is Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we'll be looking at the entire psalm, 12 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive it. And I pray that we and that all the peoples of the earth would bow the knee and confess the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign and ruler of all our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we looked at Psalm 1 and its description of the blessed man. Now, given that that was the first psalm of this book of 150 psalms, here compiled and preserved for us as a part of God's word, those things that come first in such a collection They're important. They set the stage. They set the tone for what's to come. For instance, you might think about, okay, what's the first song in our hymnal? Just in case you might not know or forgot, it is the Old Hundredth, Psalm 100. All people that on earth do dwell. It's a great song. It's probably the anthem of the Reformed faith, if there ever was one. It's one of the old Genevan Psalms from Calvin's Geneva, so people of our tradition of saying it for centuries as it is. 
So Psalm 1 sets an important paradigm for the Psalms and that it talks about these two ways, these two paths, these two roads, the blessed and the unblessed. But Psalm 2 sets another important paradigm for the Psalms. It's another recurring theme that comes back over and over throughout the Psalms. That of kingship is the first of the royal Psalms, the kingship Psalms. Now, it is no secret that many of the Psalms were written by kings. Of course, many of them were written by David. Occasionally, some were written by Solomon. There's possibly others that were written by different kings. Now, we are Americans. I would reckon that most of us have always been Americans. And so the idea of having a king might be rather strange and foreign to us. We live in a constitutional republic or something like that. We apparently self-govern. We are at the very least not governed by hereditary kings like most places in the history of the world. And in fact, most Americans were taught that monarchy is something undesirable. We look at our history and we see kings as a vehicle for tyranny. It's how you got bad leaders like old King George III from which America won its independence. And yet we live in a relatively strange and novel place in history and that we're not ruled by a king, so we don't really know what it's like to not be ruled by a king. That was pretty much universal in the world with few exceptions until the last few centuries. Now, whatever the merits might be of monarchy or other forms of government, the absence of a king on a throne in America does not mean that we are not ultimately governed by a king. Because as Christians, as God's people who believe in God's word, it forces us to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And we say that all the time. We may not really think about what it means. We say king of kings because the Bible says it. But being king of kings means that while there are kings of this earth, while there are rulers and governments of this earth, kings of nations, human kings of varying degrees and sorts, there is a king, there is a sovereign, there is a ruler over all of them. And Jesus Christ is that ultimate king and ruler over all of the heavens and the earth. And the Psalms are not in the least bit bashful in saying so, even though it is the Old Testament and Christ is only known through the types and shadows, he is very clearly in texts like this one here tonight held forth as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Psalm 2 is perhaps the most clear and famous assertion of the sort of kingly rule that the anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ exercises. And like Psalm 1 before, as I said, this sets an important theme and paradigm for the other Psalms. Many of those also confess and acknowledge and exalt God's kingly rule, particularly through his Messiah, through his anointed. So we're going to look at this kingly Psalm tonight in four points. First, there are despisers of the king in verses 1 through 3. Not everyone, 
particularly other kings of the earth, care for the rule of the king of kings. And second, we see the derision of the king in verses 4 and 5. The king of kings is not beholden to these earthly kings, and he laughs at them, and he judges them. Third, the decree of the king in verses 6 through 9. The king of kings has a purpose in this world, things that he wills to accomplish. And then fourth and finally, duty to the king in verses 10 through 12. The king of kings is owed worship, respect, and reverence. So again, we have despisers of the king, derision of the king, the decree of the king, and the duty to the king. Those are our four points for this evening. First, we look at the despisers of the king in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist poses a rhetorical question in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Now, one does not have to look very far in the world of that era to see what the psalmist was describing. We don't have a particular author listed for this psalm, but we could assume that, as with all of the psalms, this was sometime during the nation of Israel of the Old Testament. And Israel was surrounded by nations that were enemies of God, rebels against God. They would often come and make war with them in attempts to snuff out God's people. We've been looking in the book of Genesis in the mornings. We have frequently seen the division and conflict between the city of God and the city of man. And it has always been the way of the city of man to rebel against their king, to despise him, to reject him, to choose others who would rule over them. Now there is always in this rebellion an aspect of plotting. We can think of ways in the Bible where rebellion against God comes in the form of plots. We've been going through the Gospel of John in the evenings. We see the plot against Christ to put him to death by the scribes and the Pharisees. We can think back to something earlier we looked at in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, where the nations gathered together to rebel against God, to basically try to build a tower to invade heaven to make themselves great, and to usurp God's rightful place as the ruler of the world. It's a vain plot. It's going nowhere. God easily and handily foiled it. But there are so many other plots against God. And we see plots against God in our day. We see in our day the nation's rage and the people's plot vain things against God. We see the world and the society rebel against him. But what good is it to plot against God? Well, the psalm is clear. That which is plotted against God is vain. Now, it is vain because God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing ultimately happens apart from his will or his purposes or his decrees. Even those who see themselves as rebels against God are instruments in his hands. Think back to that incident at the Tower of Babel. Again, the people of the earth, they congregated in one area. They essentially tried to invade heaven, tried to bring it down, tried to throw off God's rule. 
They thought they had come so far. They were so smart. They were so powerful. And they were all the people of the world gathered in one place. They had so many resources at their disposal. And so they thought they could overthrow God and rule over themselves. And how did it go? Well, they were foiled. And they were scattered. Their languages were confused. What irreparably slowed the progress of the city of man was simply God willing that they would go no farther. And they went no farther. But in our day, we see many efforts to rebuild Babel. Nations and kings plotting against God and rising up against him. And yet if God merely wished for them to stop, they would be stopped so easily and so quickly. That doesn't stop the nations from raging. On and on they go. Maybe yet again in our day, we will see God confuse man and lay low his ambitions so that he might not toil and rebel to his own destruction. Because none can successfully plot against the Lord. He is undefeated and undefeatable. Verse 2 describes the king of the nations taking counsel. There's that word again from this morning. Getting together, taking advice from each other, having meetings, having summits, trying to throw off God's rule. Think of it in terms of like a special meeting of the G8, however many they are, the biggest nations, they get together and they have these meetings and these economic and political talks. Imagine the G8 gets together and they have a special meeting and they plot to throw off God's rule. Now they never do this so brashly or explicitly, but sometimes they get kind of close by their particular agendas. But so if all the most powerful nations of the earth come together to rebel against God, some onlookers might start to think, oh man, that God is in trouble. If he's up against all the world, all its military power, all its nuclear weapons, all its economic sanctions, all the powers the world has to throw. But God is not in trouble even as the nations of the world plot against him. Nothing could be further from the truth. This brings us to our second point. After the despisers of the king, we come to the derision of the king in verses 4 and 5. So our hypothetical G8 summit decides they are declaring war on God. They've had enough of his rule. They've had enough of his backward and bigoted and intolerant and outdated ways. They're going to muster armies and tanks and planes and bombs. They're going to go and get God. Was God in trouble? Well, verse 4 tells us what God thinks. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Oh, well... That's not how that was supposed to go, the kings of the earth might think. The rulers and kings of man think they are so big, so powerful, that they are the true sovereigns of the world. They think that nothing is outside of their reach. They think they can solve all the world's problems. 
with all the right policy, have some kind of heaven on earth, even defeat death. And they can have all of this without having to bow to the true king. They even think things like they can control and change the weather if it's not to their liking. How's that working out this week? And so they rebel against God. They press an order of moral anarchy and sin. They punish good and promote evil, all in the name of freedom and autonomy. But what does God think of them? He laughs. He mocks. He holds them in derision. You don't laugh and mock those who you see as your equal, those who are a threat, those who are truly powerful. No, God disrespects them as they disrespect him. Only he has all true power over them. They have no power over him. But that is not all. God does not merely laugh and mock and deride the wicked kings for their wickedness. No, he will eventually bring them to an end. That is what verse 5 says. He will speak to them in his wrath. God will let the wicked have their day for a time. And it may look to those of us who serve God in this fallen and sinful world that evil might even be winning for a while. But make no mistake, this is only temporary. See, all who wield power in this world will give an account for it. Those who wield wickedness and sin and vice and persecute God's people, they will be judged. They will experience the fullness of God's wrath at the last day, at the final judgment. If all the leaders of the earth rise up against God, he could with a word lay them all low. And someday he will. His laughter will turn to wrath. And their plotting and scheming and arrogance will turn to terror and distress and despair as they are swept away by God's wrath. And God is going to replace the wicked kings who rebel against him with his own king. And this brings us to our third point. After the despisers and the derision of the king, we come to the decree of the king in verses 6 through 9. So the wicked kings who plot against God, they're going down. They now taste of his laughter and derision, and they will soon taste of his wrath and judgment. And a new order is coming. We see this in verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So who's the king in Zion? We don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. Probably originated sometime during the Jewish monarchy. It could have been David. could have been somebody around his time or someone who came after him. Well, the king, yeah, sorry, losing my voice. The kings had a palace in Jerusalem, the city of Zion, where the temple was. It was right next to the temple. So is this talking about the rise of a king in Israel like the kings they had? I mean, they did have their monarchy for a long time. They had David, they had his son Solomon, they had all his descendants for hundreds of years up until the exile. And yet when that exile came, their monarchy, their kings, their palaces, they were destroyed. 
people of Israel were carried into exile by the very sort of kings that this psalm condemns. Think of the kings of Assyria. Think of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. These were evil kings. These were pagan, pagan kings. They had no regard for God, and yet they were instruments of judgment in his hands. But the kind of king that can fulfill this kind of rule in Psalm 2 has to be someone greater. Verse 7 talks of a divine decree. There is a king that comes according to the immutable, unchangeable, sovereign decree and plan of God. And he's not merely a king, he's a son. God says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It would not be proper for David or any of the other kings of Israel to be referred to as a son begotten by God. Sure, God's people are sons of God in a more generic sense, but this particular language of decree and sonship and begottenness, well, that is meant to point us somewhere to one particular person. It is from this and other texts like it that Israel hoped for a Messiah that was yet to come. And verse 8 talks of this Messiah's conquest. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This king would come and conquer. He would rule over not merely Zion, not merely Jerusalem, not merely Israel, but over the whole earth. Now, in the time of the Old Testament, that never happened. Israel was particularly concerned with Israel. And there were good reasons for that. They struggled to keep their land. They were often beset by foreign invaders. There was some expansion at times. Their empire got the largest it ever did under King Solomon. But there was also frequently contraction. There was territory and power that were lost. They never got even a little bit close to a king that was possessing the ends of the earth, that was possessing all of the nations as an inheritance. But also Israel's inward focus meant that other aspects of God's covenant promises to them. So think of the covenant with Abraham that we've been studying in Genesis. And how it said through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There were other aspects of these covenant blessings that were largely neglected and forgotten because of this inward focus. But the king of Psalm 2 comes and takes up these promises again. But not everyone becomes a part of the king's kingdom. The king also comes to execute wrath and judgment against his enemies. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This king comes to possess the nations, and those who stand in his way will be utterly destroyed. They will not be able to stand against his power. Now, this text could, understand, understood a certain way, seem to point to some great conquering military leader who would actually rise up and conquer the whole world. And probably a lot of Israel's misplaced messianic expectations arose from taking this psalm too literally, too materially, too focused on the things of this world. 
They'd read this. They say, we're going to get a military and political leader and through him, we are going to conquer the world. In a certain way, this perfectly primed them to miss their Messiah when he did come. Not as a man of great power and horses and armies, but of a rather mundane origin. The son of a builder in the backwaters of Galilee. Even more perplexing, he had a couple of opportunities to be an earthly king. Once in Galilee after feeding the multitude. Again on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. There was a multitude, they were ready to make him the king in Jerusalem. Both times there was a significant movement, there was an uprising. They were ready to make Jesus their king and let him rule over their nations and lands. But he didn't do it. Why? Because those kingdoms weren't big enough. A physical king of Galilee or of Jerusalem isn't going to displace and possess the kings of the nations. And yet a spiritual king who is also a prophet, who brings not horses and armies, but the very word of God for salvation, and who is also a priest who offers himself as a once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin, that is the king that will possess the nations as his inheritance. The gospel of Christ will go forth to the ends of the earth, and a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will come together under his crown, under his rule. He's building a kingdom not built with hands, but built on his blood and built by his word and spirit. But those who will not enter Christ's kingdom instead face wrath and judgment. They will face the rod of iron. They will face this breaking into pieces. Now, they may not experience it in this life, but there comes again that day of judgment where all will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all will acknowledge him there, but for those who did not in this life, it will be too late. And this brings us to our final point. After the despising and derision and decree of the king, we come to the duty to the king in verses 10 through 12. In light of this revelation of the king of kings, there is now an exhortation, a parting warning to the other kings. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. All the kings of the earth, just as all other peoples of the earth, have a particular obligation to acknowledge and serve the king of kings. They are to recognize that their authority is derived from God's authority and granted by him. We see this in Romans 13. It's often cited as a text to command persons to submit to their rulers, and rightly so. But what is often neglected in that text is that rulers are demanded and expected to punish evil and reward good. And evil and good, when the Bible talks about them, it's evil and good according to God's standards. They don't just get to decide what is good and evil. They are subject to a higher law. 
and a higher king, even if they don't acknowledge it. Romans 13 also says that rulers are servants of God. They are deacons of God in their kingly rule. So if they're servants of God, then they should discharge their office in service to God. We should hope and pray for rulers who believe in God and govern according to his word. This is controversial in our day. Many say that we should not use the Bible in government. The government is not particularly beholden to God's rule and God's law. Government can determine what is based on its own because of social contract, because of some idea of natural law. And so if we introduce God, if we introduce the Bible, if we introduce anything religious into public life, that's wrong. They'll say things like that's confusing of kingdoms or that's going back to Israelite theocracy and types and shadows. But it's plain and it's universal here in Psalm 2. Rulers have a ruler. And they are commanded to acknowledge and follow and even worship him, just as everyone is in whatever vocation they have. Jesus doesn't stop being king of kings when we enter a Capitol building or a courthouse. All are commanded to kiss the sun, and if they don't, there are consequences. If they will not acknowledge their king and ours, they will experience his wrath. And even a little of his wrath is enough to lay low all the rulers of the earth. That is how great his power is. Jesus is Savior, but he is also Lord and King. And to fail to acknowledge him as such carries the most severe of consequences. But there is another option. The last line of this psalm. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. We end the day where we began it in Psalm 1. The blessed man is the one who fears God. This is true of everyone, but it is no less true of the kings of the earth. Wherever you are, whatever you are, don't think there are too many kings among our number, but in whatever God has called you to in this life, if you do not want to experience God's wrath, the gospel is held forth so that all who would repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will receive his blessing. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those who trust in Christ, the King of Kings who has been revealed in this psalm here tonight, need not fear his judgment. But to those who do not trust in him, those who rebel against him, those who plot vain things against him, those who walk in the path of destruction, the way of sinners, there is misery and punishment and the final judgment, and there is eternal condemnation in hell. So which will you be? Will you be one who kisses the sun 
one who bows and worships him as he deserves and as he commands? Or will you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. And we praise the King of kings and Lord of lords, your Son, Jesus Christ, who is revealed in it. I pray that this word would be written on our hearts, that it would be true in our lives, that it would be true in our lands. I pray that you would draw those to salvation whom you have called. I pray that you would rule over your people with justice, with justice and righteousness, and that this justice and righteousness would go forth into this world. And I pray that if there's any here tonight who do not believe this gospel, that by your spirit you would convict them of sins and draw them into your salvation. And I pray that all that we do and all that we say would bring honor and glory to our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.